Our text for this morning is John 13, verses 31 to 38, and this is the word of Almighty God. When he had gone out, that's Judas who had gone out. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Pray with me. Lord God, what a good day. What good songs to sing. Indeed, yours is the glory. As you have accomplished everything you intended in your holy story. God, you are worthy. And we praise you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for what you're going to teach us today. And I'll pray, Lord, again, as I asked you this morning, do mighty work in your people this day. Do things that we would look up and say, wow, God did great, even surprisingly good things in the church this day. Save souls, change hearts, bring repentance, bring joy, bring comfort, accomplish whatever is your will. And we acknowledge here and now that not one good thing will happen without you doing it. It's to your name, in your name, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You all can be seated. So one of my favorite classes in college was Speech Communication 401, Rhetorical Criticism. Now how nerdy is that? So what you did is you learned to analyze more than speeches we looked at movies, commercials, music. I remember a poster once. And the whole key was to find the message that the creator of the communication might subtly be trying to communicate to others. And that's a skill, by the way, that many of us would do well to put into practice today, especially with the movies that are marketed for our little ones. Wouldn't you guys agree that there are many movies out there, many entertainment mediums that have an agenda and a message that's actually quite anti-God, but subtly packaged to bring to bear on the lives of our children. And before you assume that what I just suggested is a new thing, I want to remind you that Disney has been embracing what Carl Truman calls the rise and triumph of the modern self for decades all communication. I don't care if it's a movie you're watching, if it's a commercial, 
All communication has a purpose. Often, there's an agenda. And as we study the Bible, especially as we watch people's actions unfold, there's a purpose in each act, too. As we see the things godly people do, we see truth being taught. Sometimes, accounts in the Bible are showing us how God brought about redemption. Sometimes, we learn examples of how those who love God live. Sometimes, the acts of people symbolize for us significant truths, if we can just find them. Here in John chapter 13, the Savior's been doing some dramatic, symbolic things. He's been beginning to open the door to demonstrate to his disciples truths about the church, about the gospel. Do we need a rhetorical criticism class to figure out what it is the Savior's up to? Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus would give us a little little summary to help us know what to think about the things he's done? Well, guess what? In the passage for today... Jesus is summarizing for us things that have just taken place as he gets ready to prepare his faithful disciples for his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, you have already seen significant moments taking place. Jesus gathered the disciples in the upper room. He prepared them for the Passover meal. He washed their feet. He told them that they should demonstrate a similar kind of love for each other. Jesus told the disciples one of them would betray him. As the meal was beginning, Jesus offered Judas a morsel that he had dipped. It was a sign of true love, true friendship. But Judas, who was going to betray Jesus, did not change his mind about what he was going to do as the the greatest of hypocrites. Judas took the food, pretended to be Jesus's friend, and found himself possessed by the devil. Jesus sent Judas out, though the other disciples didn't understand why. And if you tie all of those happenings together, there's a few themes that are emerging. Jesus shows us his glory, the God who knows exactly what's happening. He's the God who's fully in control, that is Jesus. Jesus shows love in the foot washing. And that final offer of love to Judas, Jesus shows himself loving. And Jesus shows us his grace. The foot washing symbolizes the cleansing grace that he would bring us through his work on the cross. Now as we see Jesus' words here at the end of this chapter... The Savior is going to summarize for us one more time. Glory, love, and grace. So let's see those things all put together. And let's find three points in our study of the Savior's teaching. Point number one. Glorify Jesus as God. Glorify Jesus as God. Look at verses 31 and 32 with me. When he'd gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. After Judas left the upper room, 
Jesus says to the disciples, now, starting now, in this moment, in the moments to follow, Jesus is glorified. The hour has come, the time is at hand, the glory of Jesus is about to be accomplished and manifested for all to see in what Jesus will do over the coming hours and days, we will see his glory. Now let's stop for a second. What does glory mean? Y'all ever notice Christians love to use the word glory? How many of you are John Pipery people? None of you? Okay, well, bless your hearts. He likes to use the word glory a lot. But if we're told we're supposed to glorify God, if we're told what is the chief end of man to what? To glorify God. That means you better know what glory means, doesn't it? You ought to get it. What does glory mean? I want to give you two concepts for you to have in mind when you think about glory. On the one hand, think about weight or weightiness. W-E-I-G-H-T, not W-A-I-T, just so you know. Weight, exactly. A weighty concept is a concept that is important. If you say a subject has weight or gravity to it, you're saying that that subject matters. If a person has about them gravitas, they carry themselves as significant. Do you guys know anybody? That, you're like, that dude has gravitas. That's what Kelly says every time she talks about Jason Lekowitz. She's like, Jason has gravitas. I think she said that. Maybe I'm wrong. But when we speak about the glory of God, we're saying God is weighty, that God has gravity, that God is of the highest significance. When we glorify God, we declare that significance. We do things to show others how significant God is. Christians meet together every Sunday to say God is significant. We sing. Even people who do not necessarily like to sing in any other setting, we sing in order to say God is of the highest importance. One more concept. Think of the word light. Something about the glory of God stirs the concept of brilliance, of brightness, of shining majesty. When Christ was transfigured, shining like the sun, Peter, John, and James saw a hint of his glory. When God displayed his presence at the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament, there was light, there was fire, there was a cloud to show you the presence of God's glory. When Moses had seen the glory of God and talked with God, Moses' face Shown. Let me give you a, an illustration from the universe itself. 
One of the ways that the glory of God is shown is in the sun sitting at the center of the solar system. This, by the way, is totally a John Piper illustration. Around the sun, real quick quiz for you, are how many planets? How many of you still embrace Pluto? Yay, man, I it take Pluto out of my solar system. I don't care what they say. <laughs> now, how many of you believe that you have the strength in yourself to hold a planet on course? Again, while they say that Chuck Norris kicked the earth and made it start spinning... That he does not do push-ups, but the earth goes down. That could be an exaggeration. The fact is, I don't care who you are, I don't care how strong you are, I don't care how big a machine you got, you can't move a planet. Only the sun, which by the way has in itself 99% of the mass in our solar system, only the sun has the gravity to hold the planets in their orbit. You and I couldn't start to move a planet. We could never keep a planet on course if it wanted to go off course. But by the mass of its gravity, the sun can. And the sun, with its brilliance, gives light. And, I don't know, could we say warmth to the planet? Have you guys noticed the sun is giving some warmth to our planet today? It's, it's 93 million miles, or how, how many, how far away is, is the sun from us? 93 what? Million? Billion? Bazillion? It's a long way away! Now think about this for a second. The sun from that far away is heating us to over 100 degrees today. Think it's got some mass and some weight and some brightness to it? This is a dim, tiny little picture of the gravity and the shining glory of God. See how that works? When Jesus says that he is glorified, when Jesus says that he's being glorified, He's saying that the events that are now happening, they are testimonies to the truth of his weight, his gravity, his importance, and his bright, shining brilliance. Jesus is glorified in the mission he's about to accomplish. And the evil of Judas only serves to bring about what will show us the greatness, the weightiness, the majesty, the beauty, the glory of Jesus. And before we look at this even more, and before we try to to worship Jesus more, look at how Jesus speaks of his glory. Because how he speaks about his glory tells us who he is. It tells us his identity. Because Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now friends, in case you don't get it, Jesus just once again said to us that Jesus is God. 
He is co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is glorified. If Jesus is glorified, the Father is glorified. If the Father is glorified, Jesus is glorified. If Jesus is glorified now, the Father is glorified now and will glorify the Son now. The glory of the Father and the glory of the Son are the very same glory. Now ask yourself this question. Who could claim that they have the same glory as God? If you claimed to possess the glory that only belongs to God, you would be committing blasphemy. For Jesus to claim that glory is for Jesus to show us the truth that he is God in the flesh, God the Son, God worthy of worship. Jesus showed his disciples a hint of his glory. He showed them a hint of it when he told them what was about to happen before it took place. Jesus made a claim to deity here when he claims that he has the glory that the Father has. Jesus says that this walk that he's taking to the cross, this walk that will take him then through the grave and up into heaven alive, this is to his glory and to the glory of God the Father. And the only right response we can have, brothers and sisters, is that we glorify Jesus as God. You need to understand who Jesus is. You need to understand what Jesus has done. You need to bow to Jesus in worship. And you need to give Jesus the glory that only God deserves. Worship God, the one true God. The God who is the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Let's move on now to point number two. There'll be a couple things to write down in this point. Love like Jesus. Point number two, love like Jesus. 33 to 35, Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. How how will Jesus be glorified? He's going to go somewhere the disciples cannot follow. Jesus is headed to the cross. This is Thursday night. He'll be crucified Friday morning. And only Jesus can do the sacrificial work to rescue the children of God. And in that act, the glory of Jesus is going to be plain. Well, what should the disciples do as they live to follow Jesus? Once Jesus has died, once he has risen from the grave, once Jesus has ascended to heaven and sat down on the throne of God... What are we supposed to do? Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. I want to emphasize something for us here real quick. We're about to look at a command of Jesus. We're about to look at a little law from Jesus. This is something that those 
who have already come to Jesus and trusted in Jesus as their Savior. This is something that we can follow for joy and for the glory of God. If you don't know Jesus yet, if you've not been forgiven yet, following this command and just being a lovey person will not make you okay with God because you could never earn the grace of God. Also, this is not, when you look at a command like this, a thing that we should use as a club to beat up a struggling Christian or to make people start doubting their faith because they're not obeying the command the way we want them to. Obeying commands like this, it's just what followers of Jesus try to do because we love Jesus. Jesus showed his love for his disciples. How? He humbled himself. He washed their feet. He's about to show the ultimate love of God by going to the cross to save our very souls. And Jesus says, if you've got my grace, if you know me, honor me by loving one another as I have loved you. We said a couple of weeks ago, love rightly understood. It's a commitment to doing another person good, even when it's costly. Love doesn't mean you give people everything they want. True? Parents, if you love your children, do you give them everything they want? What would you eat for, for lunch today if you gave your children everything they wanted? Yeah. Yeah, meatballs, ice cream, just, just ice cream all day, every day. Would that be love? No. Giving people what they want may not be to their good, so you can't always give people what they want if you love them. But true love is willing, as Jesus was willing, to lay down your life for the good of others. Now, let's go back. The wording of what Jesus says here, I think, is interesting. How in the world is this command to love a new command? Do you guys think that this is the first time Jesus, that God has ever told his people to love one another? Right here, John 13. Hey, here's a new idea, dudes. Love each other. No. Right? The command to love your neighbor as yourself is found in Leviticus 19.18. And before this evening in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus told his followers, love your enemies, Matthew 5.44, and love your neighbors, Matthew 22.39. So the command doesn't sound new on the surface. The concept of loving other people and being commanded by God to love other people is not a new concept. Neither is it even new for Jesus to call his followers to love others. So let me ask you again, what is new when he says a new command I give you? It's in the last line of verse 34. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It's not that the command to love one another is new. It's that the command to love like Jesus is new. What's it mean to do something like another person? It means you do it in a similar way or to a similar extent as that other person. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he was pointing out the fact that he was about to make them clean 
through an act of ultimate sacrifice, ultimate humiliation. When Jesus said in verse 33, he was going somewhere they can't follow, he was pointing to his death on the cross. And it was in the light of those things that Jesus said, you guys love like I've loved. How did Jesus love? He loved his disciples by willingly laying down his life for them as the sacrifice for their sins. He loved them by being so committed to their good that he was willing to let go of his own rights, all of his comforts, all of his earthly prestige, just to do them good. He put their good over his safety, his health, his own life. He loved them by demonstrating for them the perfect love of God. Now, Jesus didn't do this just to offer his disciples the benefits of the pleasures of this life, right? Jesus didn't die so you can get rich. Jesus didn't die so you can be healthier than the average bear. Jesus' love was aimed at leading the disciples to worship him, to believe in him, to be saved by him. Jesus sacrificed so we could be saved from our sins and then glorify the Lord. The ultimate love of Jesus is intended to lead disciples away from an embracing of the world and toward an embracing of the glory of God in Christ. So maybe what makes the command of Jesus new is that love has never been understood as so self-sacrificial, so extreme, so committed or so focused on the worship and the glory of God. What might the disciples have thought of when they hear just the phrase, love each other? Maybe they thought of love as just emotion, just fondness. Or maybe they would have seen love as self-sacrificial, but not to the point of death. Or maybe they would have seen love as self-sacrificial even to the point of death, but not with the ultimate goal of the glory of God. The kind and extent of love as they understood it changes when they see it in the light of Jesus. How did Jesus love? He loved by making and then keeping a commitment to others and to their good. He loved by humbly sacrificing everything for the good of others. He loved by going to the greatest extreme to accomplish the greatest good for the people he loved. He loved by making the ultimate goal of his love, the goal of demonstrating for the disciples the glory of God. The love of Jesus was self-sacrificial, committed, extreme, God-focused. That's how he commands us to love Two. He said love like him. So let's step into the present and let's start asking, what would it look like for me to love my fellow Christians right here at PRC in a way that looks like Jesus? Now, first thing you need to know, you cannot die for others as the sacrifice for their sins. Only Jesus can do that. 
But you can love like Jesus, sacrificially, extremely, out of commitment, with a Godward focus. Let's talk about those four. Sacrificially. If you love people here in the church, sacrificially, you will willingly give up things that you want, even things you think you need, in order to do other people good. To love to the extreme means that the love that you give, that the sacrifice that you make, is not limited to what is easy or always comfortable. Jesus didn't call us to love a little. He called us to give like he gave, and he gave it all. To love out of commitment means that your love is not based on emotion, not based on feeling, not based merely on fondness. Now, your love for others should include a fondness and a kind feeling toward them, but your love is not limited to emotion because emotions change. Commitment is key here. And to love with a focus on God and God's glory means that your love for others is going to be regularly expressed in ways that helps others to understand and to rejoice in the goodness and the perfection and the awesomeness and the glory of our Lord. So those were some nice abstract thoughts on how it looks for you to love today. But how do we picture it? What do we do concretely for you to show the love of Jesus. First, I want to suggest to you that you give yourself a little homework assignment. Start a list. Just start listing answers to this question. How can I show love like Jesus toward my Christian brothers and sisters at PRC? My love should be self-sacrificial, Extreme, committed, and God-focused. Let me give you some hints on starting this list. Ask yourself, where could I personally sacrifice for others? Where can you sacrifice your preferences? I don't like doing it that way. Okay. There are things we do I don't like, but guess what? It may be to our good that we do them anyway. Where can you put the likes and dislikes of others ahead of your own? See Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Ask yourself, where are you tempted to grumble and complain about others... And complain about how things aren't done the way you want them done. Ask yourself, where can I give to the extreme? Could I give more of my talent for the good of the church? Do you have a skill that might help somebody in the church who doesn't have that skill? Maybe you're one of those guys that can fix anything in a house. I will tell you right now, I can't. There are some ladies in the church who don't have husbands in their houses who can. 
can you give to care for others sacrificially? How can you find a way to give that skill even when you're busy, even though you're tired? Little side note, I'm trying really hard when people ask how are things going to stop using the word busy. Real quick, just a poll. How many of you are busy? And stop telling everybody. We all are. As I saw somebody say recently with a different quiz, they said, quick quiz, in the summer it gets blank outside. What goes in that blank? If you know the answer, stop talking about it like you're surprised. <laughs> Let's try another one. Where can you love out of commitment? Where can you show love even when you don't emotionally feel like loving? To whom can you demonstrate love even though that person is not exactly like you, maybe not even quite your type of person? Is there somebody you can love by offering them forgiveness? How can you love by pointing people to the glory of God? Who could you love by just talking with them about Jesus? Who could you love in our church by graciously confronting them about something you're worried about in their life? See some sin that needs to be confronted. Who outside of our church could you love by sharing the gospel? You see how this works? Start making a little list here and ask yourself, how can I love like Jesus in the church? What would it look to love like Jesus in every aspect of my life in the church? Would your time in Sunday school look different if you loved like Jesus? This is going to be right on the edge of being legalistic. Please hear me graciously. I understand our lives are all different. But how many of you could show up at Sunday school in order to better love people like Jesus? Like I said, I know there are times when the Lord providentially hinders you from being able to do that. But I believe that more of us could be gathering together to encourage and, and grow together if we would just be committed to coming that hour earlier. How, how if you were committed to loving like Jesus, would your attitude in worship service itself be different? Maybe you would volunteer for the nursery to get somebody out of it. Maybe you would volunteer to teach children's Sunday school. My wife would love some extra helpers in children's Sunday school. How many of you would greet somebody? How many of you would take time to talk to somebody you don't really know in order to show the love of Jesus? How would the things that you gripe about be different if your goal was to let go of your own preferences for the sake of the preferences and the good of others? With whom would you eat lunch if you wanted to show the love of Jesus? You guys have a starter for a list in your mind right now? Is anybody convicted? I only know one of you who's convicted right now, you bunch of pagans. <laughs> Don't stop until you've got a better picture in your mind of what it might look like for you to love like Jesus. And then, you ready? Start loving like Jesus. 
Jesus also said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. See, everything Jesus just said about loving in verse 34, it's a love that is to be expressed here inside the church and in our homes together. But Jesus also says to his disciples that if you love each other the way that I love you, when you practice it in your life, when you practice it in your home, when you practice it in the church, loving is going to make a major difference because our loving each other is going to mark us as genuine followers of God in the, in the eyes of even the lost world. How? How does loving like Jesus mark you as truly God's people? Well, in simplest form, we need to realize that the things that we do, it will look different than the world. There's got to be a clearly discernible difference between the love that the world displays and the love that we display toward one another because of Jesus. So what's going to look different? Maybe it's going to be the extent of your love. People in the world are willing to sacrifice their comforts for the benefits of others a little bit, we need to be different. Our extent needs to be further. It needs to be more like Jesus. We sacrifice our comforts for the good of one another to a higher degree than the world to show that our love is different than that of the world. Or maybe it's motivation, right? People in the world sometimes will love, but they love for selfish reasons. They love because it makes them feel good. Or I want the person I'm loving to like me back. Or I want to I gain political points. I want people to see what a good giver I am. But we love to bring glory to God and to point others to God. So ask, why do I show love? Does it look different than the love of the world? Our love's going to look different in kind than that of the world. Most people in the world will not give up themselves or their comforts or their position or their rights or their time or their money in order to love people. They may love a little bit, but they do it when it's convenient. We need to become a body of such extreme lovers of one another that the world will recognize that there is absolutely something different when they come in to be around this group of people. Something about us should show the world these people love self-sacrificially. They love extremely. They love with commitment. They love for the glory of God. They love like Jesus. How will the world see this kind of love? They might see it when they walk into this room. Right? They should actually see that there is a caring, a fondness, a genuine commitment to one another when they see you people talk to each other. Now again, here's the funny thing. That fondness may not come out of common interest in things of this life. In fact, our fondness for one another may not even come out of being people who would normally like each other at all. Y'all, some of you are weird. Not me, of course, but some of you. The fact is, the fondness we have for one another, the caring and commitment we have for one another, it should come out of the fact that we, if we know Jesus, we're part of God's singular family. You don't have to look like me. You don't have to have my weird sense of humor. You don't have to like sushi. You should, but you don't have to. But there should be a clear understanding to anybody who meets us that we care about each other, that we prefer others more than our own preferences, that we sacrifice our desires for the desires of others, and we do it out of a commitment to Jesus and to one another. 
It's simply true. If we love like Jesus, we will look way different than the world. It'll be different in kind, in extent, in motivation, in expression, in everything. People should see us and they should see, say, wow, those are the people that must belong to Jesus because they ain't like us. Is that true of you? Jesus has shown us a true, a stunning love. Do you know Jesus? If you know Jesus, love like Jesus. Let me go back to my disclaimer before we jump in here. I really was, my goal is not to use a club and beat you about the head and shoulders here. But I believe that we should be convicted when Jesus says, love like I loved you. And I pray that what it'll do for you, Christian, is not give you laws to fulfill, but such a love for Jesus that it just bubbles right out of you. Third point, last point. Rejoice in Jesus' mercy. Verses 36 to 38, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not, have, will not crow until you've denied me three times. Peter can't focus on this call to love one another just yet. He's taken by Jesus' words in verse 33 that he's leaving. Peter says, where are you going? Jesus tells Peter, I'm going somewhere. You can't follow me right now. Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to lay down his life to atone for the sins of others. That is a thing Peter cannot do. So Jesus lets Peter know, at the present time, you can't follow me. Now, there will be a day that Peter will die. In fact, Peter will most likely die on a cross. History says he was crucified upside down outside of Rome. I don't know if that's true or not, but Peter was definitely, you know, Jesus promised Peter would have his arms stretched out in crucifixion too, just not in a sacrificial atonement. But Peter, he wants to show his love. He wants to show his commitment to Jesus. He kind of sounds like a little kid who wants to leave with mom and dad. Why can't I come now? And then Peter says, Jesus, I just want you to know, man, I will lay down my life for you. I think Jesus caught the irony of the moment. Do you get it? Do you see it? Peter would lay down his life for Jesus? Peter doesn't understand that Jesus is on his way to lay down his life for Peter and for all who would ever be forgiven by God. No, Peter can't come. And then in a very gracious display, Jesus tells Peter that, no, Peter, you can't follow me now. In fact, in a few hours, Pete, probably before about 3, 3.30 in the morning, you're going to deny ever knowing me three times. The man who is brash and confident at the dinner table will run away and disown Jesus when faced with danger. Why would I call that gracious? Just think, 
Jesus tells Peter what Peter's going to do before Peter does it. Jesus makes it clear he's not surprised by Peter's actions. Jesus knows Peter's going to deny him. And he will sin greatly in that process because denying Jesus is a sin. But as he says it, it's not as though Jesus is sending Peter out into the darkness like he did Judas. He's not cutting him off. He's not telling Peter, you are going to hell forever for what you're going to do. No. Jesus shows Peter that he knows what's going to happen. But he still treats Peter with grace. And at the end of this gospel... We're going to watch in chapter 21 as Jesus helps Peter understand he has been forgiven, restored to his place as one of the followers of Jesus. Now in Peter, I'm guessing a lot of us can see ourselves. How many times, in how many ways have you denied the Savior? How many times have you chosen to do things your way and not God's way? How many times have you chosen to remain in the background instead of proclaiming the gospel? How many times have you indulged your desires instead of honoring God? How many times have you hidden from conflict instead of declaring God's truth? How many times have you chosen evil instead of good? Do you realize we've all denied Jesus in one form or another? Here's the good news. Jesus knew Peter's sin, but he still chose to go to the cross and die for Peter's sin. And I'll let you in on something wonderful. Jesus knows your sin, and he still chose to go to the cross. He still offers us forgiveness. Even though he knows we all will from time to time continue to deny and dishonor him, he still died to pay for our sins. This should cause us to rejoice in Jesus' mercy. Jesus knew you middle-aged people, the stupid things you would do in high school, How many of you are really, really glad they didn't have cell phone cameras when you were in school? You know why? Because you were probably a dum-dum at least once. But, and this is really important, Jesus also knows the stupid thing that you may do tomorrow or three or four years from now. He knows when you're going to grumble. He knows when you're going to lie. He knows when you're going to let yourself be grabbed by that sin that wants to dominate you. And he died for those two. Knowing how Jesus forgave Peter, how he he told Peter exactly what was going to happen, shows us the glory of the grace of Christ. Let's step away from the upper room for now and Soon we're going to come back and we're going to hear what Jesus has to say to the disciples to help them get ready for his departure. But I think we've heard enough for today to be a benefit. When Jesus summarized what's happened so far, 
He pointed to glory, love, and grace. Those should be very center in our hearts. Let's glorify Jesus as God, love others like Jesus, rejoice in Jesus' grace. And let me remind you of this. If you don't yet know Jesus, all of this begins not with you being good, not with you earning it, not with you cleaning up. It begins with you entrusting your very self to the Savior who died and rose again to bring people to God. Let's pray, friends. Lord, we bow now. And we thank you so, so much for Jesus. Lord, we glorify you as God, true God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, very God of very God. We magnify you, Lord. Help us to find ways to do that more and more. Help us specifically to see Jesus as God, God the Son, God worthy of all praise. Lord, we also pray that you would help us Help us to love like Jesus. We acknowledge here and now we've never, ever been good enough on our own. So when we ask this, it's not about us earning anything. We ask you, God, help us love one another. I do pray for the conviction that we need here. We need to be convicted. Do it for your glory. But don't let this be a crushing conviction. Let it bring about conviction. Let it bring about repentance. Let it bring about this being the greatest, sweetest, most loving, most gracious church anyone's ever seen while holding tightly to Scripture. And thank you for grace. Thank you that you know my sins past present and future. And thank you that Jesus died and took my punishment for all of them. Help me to live in the light of that grace to your glory. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.